So this fall, I've been preaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, to a church in Thessalonica that he had started around the year 49 AD. And then he and his fellow missionaries were driven out of uh, town by a mob of angry Jews who objected to his preaching that Jesus was uh, Lord. And so a couple of years later, he sends this letter in response to some of the issues that he's heard that, is going, that have been going on. In the first section we went through, he reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of his love for them. And then in chapter 4, which we began last week, he transitions to talking about some practical issues, some specific things that they are dealing with, wrestling with, that they have questions about. Uh, in chapter 4, last week we looked at uh, sexuality and God's vision for our sexuality. This week it's about work, God's vision for our work. And then next week he starts to talk about death. Um, so we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 some verses on that. And then I'm going to also just add a couple other verses, uh, one from 1 Thessalonians 5 and then some from 2 Thessalonians, the second letter of the church, because this seems to be a repeated issue, this issue of work. And so he addresses it in a couple places, so I just figured I would lump them all in together this morning. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, and then verse 9 to 12 to begin. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Let me skip ahead now. First Thessalonians 5. Uh, First Thessalonians, I'm sorry, did I? Maybe it was on there. Oh, that's right. First Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Now, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this passage meant when Paul wrote it, what it means for us today. Please prepare our hearts to hear and to respond to whatever it is that you tell us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to use this passage to talk a little bit about God's vision for work. And uh, if you're interested in exploring this topic further, one of the best books I've read on this is a book by Tim Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf called Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work with God's Work. So if you're interested in going more, that's a good book to check out. So there's three things in particular that I want to talk about this morning about God's vision for our work that I see in this passage. First and foremost is this, 
that God gives each of us meaningful work to do. God gives each of us meaningful work to do. Last week I uh, was looking at sexuality and I traced from Genesis to Revelation how in the beginning there's a marriage. Adam and Eve come together, man and wife. And this theme traces all the way through to the end where in the end you have Jesus and his church, the bride, where Jesus is pictured as a bridegroom and his church as the bride coming together. And you can do this with a lot of themes that you trace them kind of from beginning to end. You can do it with work as well. That in the beginning, God gives meaningful labor to Adam. It says this in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this is the beginning. This is God's good creation. And part of God's good creation is work. That he gives work to the man and the woman there to steward the creation that he's given them. To care for and oversee the animals, the plants, all of that. Now, a couple chapters later, work turns into something else entirely. After the fall, after they eat of the fruit that they were not supposed to, it says this. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So even though in the beginning it was meant to be a meaningful part of creation to work, after the fall it becomes toil, thorns and thistles, sweat of your brow. What was supposed to be this meaningful, purposeful part of existence, part of living as God's people, becomes toil. It becomes hard. So even though it's still meaningful and purposeful, it is also toilsome and hard. But in the end... After all is said and done, after God, after Jesus returns, work is still there. It says there will be no more night in Revelation 22.5. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So somehow you see at the end, Jesus returns. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And on this new recreated earth that we live on with God, that we will reign together with him over this new heavens and new earth. And what that means, I do not understand. I do not know. I've never been there, but the point of this is that in the end, work will be there. The toil will be removed. The the curse will be removed. There'll be no more curse, and we will have meaningful work to do, even in the new heavens and the new earth. So as much as we may hate work, as much as work may be toilsome, this part of eternity, it's part of God's good creation. It was there in the beginning. It will be there in the end. That's there's something about work that is intrinsic to who we are and what it means to live a meaningful life as God's image bearers. Now, there's a better word that we can use than work because work conjures up all kinds of toilsome things, but the Christian word that is used is the word vocation. It's a better word to use. It's from the Latin word vocare, which means to call, where we get voice from. And you can define it as a divine call to God's service or to the Christian life or a function or station in life to which one is called by God, 
according to our friends at dictionary.com. That's a better definition, right, though, That's, than just thinking about work. Because some of you have jobs that you work and earn a living, and some of you don't. Some of you are retired, some of you don't have jobs, and you're unemployed. But no matter where you are when it comes to having a paycheck, we all have vocations. Whether you are young, whether you are old, you all have a function or station in life that you've been called to by God. A divine call to God's service. Sometimes it is earning a paycheck, sometimes it isn't. But you all have been given vocations by God. God has, been given, God has given each of you meaningful work to do. It's not just toil. Ephesians 2.10, Paul puts it this way. He says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Verses before that talk about how God saved us by his grace, right? But he saved us for good works. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. He has given us good works, a vocation, a calling in Christ Jesus, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And again, going back to the passage we just read from 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So again, God created you and part of that creation is that he has given you a vocation, good works to do, prepared in advance for you. And that may include, if you have a spouse, loving your spouse as part of your vocation. If you have children or grandchildren, that may include loving and raising them. That's part of your vocation. It may mean serving your neighbor wherever you live. It may mean doing your job well in a way that wins the respect of others and how you work and how you labor. But the point is that God has given each of you meaningful work to do. Whether or not you earn a paycheck, you've each been given a vocation. And in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he speaks out sternly, as you may have noticed, against those who are idle, lazy, those who have an irresponsible attitude towards work. Again, go back if you missed it. He says this, We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he said, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who is idle. It does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Some such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Now, I don't think Paul is talking about unemployment. He's not talking about those who want to work, but for whatever reason can't find a job. He's talking about those who have the capacity to work, but choose for some reason not to, and choose to instead live off handouts from other people. And he warns them, and then he encourages everyone else 
If they're not going to work, they should not eat. Do not just give them handouts if they're able to work, but they choose not to. He says this idleness, this dependence on others is contrary to God's design because God has given everyone meaningful work to do. And if they will not do it, then they are in sin. They are contrary to God's design for them. Consider a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25 that I think brings this out well. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Maybe I... Here we go. It says this, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. And so also the one with the two talents gained one more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I understand that parable, he is saying, again, that he has given each of us talents, gifts, resources to be used. He's given each of you meaningful work to do. He's given each of you a vocation to live into, no matter what age you are, no matter where where you live or who you're with, you each have a vocation. And he praises those who take those resources and put them to work. Nobody loses any money. Nobody loses any resources. God blesses it and it's used for good. But the one who hides that talent and doesn't use it, he says, you wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put it on deposit with the bankers and gain interest. God has given each of you meaningful work to do. He's given each of you a vocation. And Paul in this passage and Jesus in that parable speak out against idleness, against laziness. Those who take the resources, the talents, the abilities that God has entrusted to them and waste them and squander them and do nothing with them. The second part of God's vision for our work that I see is that a central purpose of work is serving your neighbor. This one very much is related to the first one. That the purpose of work is not just to earn a living for yourself and get as much money as you can for yourself, 
But part of God's design for work is that we would serve our neighbor. In that passage from 1 Thessalonians, Paul is talking about loving your neighbor. And in that context, he talks about work. He, he equates the two. That part of loving your neighbor is the work that you do. On the one hand, he says, it's because by working, you won't be dependent on others. And so you're loving your neighbor by working so that they don't have to take care of you. But on the other hand, he says, you can work in such a way that you also are a blessing to others. That your vocation, your work, serves those around you. Some of you may need to take that to heart. Some of you may be squandering, wasting the abilities, the gifts that God has given you for some reason. And living off of others. Some of you may have children or grandchildren living with you where you feel that way. It's time for them to earn a living, move out, live on their own. Look again at 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so you will not be dependent on anybody. He tells them to work with their hands, and in those days... In Thessalonica, in the Roman Empire, manual labor was seen as the job of slaves. It was seen as beneath them. And Paul says, no, manual labor is not beneath. That is part of God's good work. Jesus was a carpenter and a rabbi. Paul was a tent maker. He made tents and a missionary. That manual labor is not beneath anybody. It's part of serving and loving your neighbor. You know, something I tried to do in preparation for this sermon was I tried to think about all the people who had a hand in me getting from waking up this morning to what I'm doing right now. You know, because sometimes you think you're just independent, right? Self-reliant. I just got up, I got in my car, I got here. But then you stop and you think about it, right? You think about all the hands that served me and you so that this could happen today. That I can see you because I'm wearing contact lenses, right? And the people who designed and created those and the, the eye doctor who I had to go to to fit, it fit me and then the people who packaged them and put them together and manufactured them and sent them to me and delivered them person the post office who delivered them and all those people who just gave me contact so I could see. Driving here, I would not be able to have gotten from where I live to here if it were not for those who manufactured the car and sold the car and delivered it and maintained the car and the roads that I drove upon, and the traffic lights, and the stop signs, and all that went into the infrastructure that got me here this morning, the clothes that I'm wearing, and all the hands that went into creating these, and selling them, and designing them, and all of that, the food that I eat, the water that I drank, the health that I enjoy, the protection that I enjoy from invaders who might want to destroy our country, all the people who served me and served you so that this could happen, this microphone that I'm speaking into, if you're at home right now, all the hands that went into this happening so that you could be in the comfort of your own home hearing my voice right now, it's incredible when you stop and think about it. All the ways that we can serve our neighbor, all the ways that we can serve each other, And some of you just go and you punch your clock and you do your job 
and you might have a hard time connecting it, right? And thinking like, I just feel like I'm doing a job. I don't see necessarily how I'm serving my neighbor. But for most of you, when you stop and you think about it, there is great dignity in what you do. There's great dignity in what you do and taking this attitude of how what you do serves others is part of God's good design that we would, in our vocation, do something that serves our neighbor, that loves our neighbor. Paul says, work with your hands. Nothing is beneath you. Everything that you do can be in service to your neighbor. Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf in that book that I mentioned earlier, they said this, the question regarding our choice of work is no longer what will make me the most money and give me the most status. The question must now be how with my existing abilities and opportunities can I be of greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and of human need? Now that's a challenging question. It's a question probably best asked when you're 17 or 18 and trying to decide what you want to do with your life maybe. Harder question to ask when you're in the middle of a career. But nevertheless, the heart of this is the same. The heart is it's not about what I can do for myself to get, gain status and money, but how can I use the abilities and experiences that God has given me to bless and serve others? That is part of God's good design for work. And I'm encouraging you, whatever it is that you do for a living, consider What are the ways that you can connect what you do to service to others? That you might see what you do as part of God's good design for you, God's good vocation for you. I mean, this past week even, we had our septic tank pumped, right? Thank God for those men and women who did that. Otherwise... What would our house be like? There's nothing that is beneath anyone else. These are all ways of serving your neighbor. Find what you do and connect it to that. Bruce Waltke put it this way. He said, The very definition of righteous people is that they disadvantage themselves to advantage others, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Part of the meaningful work God has given you to do is to be willing to serve others, to do what is difficult, to advantage others, to bless others. So God's vision for our work. Recognize that you each have a vocation. God has given each of you meaningful work to do, even if you're not earning a paycheck. That does not mean that God has not given you meaningful work to do. And a central purpose of that is serving your neighbor. How can you use the gifts and talents and resources that God has given you to serve and bless others, not just to advantage yourself? The last thing I'd say is this, of God's vision, work to please him and rest in his approval. Work to please God and rest in his approval. Going back to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4, again, he said this, whatever you do, oh, that's, that's the wrong passage. He said, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Again, he's saying, I instructed you to live to please God. Not to please yourself, but to please God. Colossians 3, Paul puts it this way. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, 
as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So if you are a teacher, teach with all your heart as if you are teaching for the Lord, not for men. If you're an engineer, be an engineer with all your heart as if you are serving the Lord, not men. If you are a spouse or a homemaker or a grandparent, then do it with all your heart as if you are doing it for him, working for him as if he is your boss. Since you know that he is the one you are serving and you'll receive an inheritance from him. It's a revolutionary way to look at work. I don't know how you've ever looked, if you've ever looked at work this way, or if you just look at it, you go to a job and you work for your boss, and if your boss is there, you work for them, and when your boss is not there, well, maybe you're not going to work for them so hard. But if you're working for the Lord, then it doesn't matter who the boss is. You're going to work to please him. And it doesn't matter who your spouse is or how they treat you. You're going to please him. Or your kids or your grandkids, or your neighbors. You're not living for them. You're living for him, to please him. So Paul said this. He said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Work to please him. Think about, again, your vocation, where you are right now in your life, what you're doing, whether it's earning a paycheck or just... In some other fashion, the vocation that you have, and what would it look like to work for him? To report to him every morning. To ask him what it is he wants you to do. To seek his approval above everyone else's. Because that approval thing, I don't know what it's like for you at work. You know, if your approval and how you feel about yourself depends upon the approval of others what you're doing for a living, whether you have a job, what kind of job that you have. Because certainly when we introduce ourselves to people, often we're asking them who they are and what they do for a living. But that's not who we are. Find your approval in who he says you are. Because the gospel declares that you are worthy, not because of what you do for a living, how much money you work, make, whether you have a job or not. But it's on the basis of his grace and his love for you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. It's not by your works, not by what you do, what you haven't done. Your self-worth, your approval is in Christ, in the gospel. That even though we're all sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God, even though we've all fallen short when it comes to work, We have not measured up. His death on the cross covers all of our sins. We're forgiven in him. We're proved by him. In him, we're loved. We're enough. And so we work to please God, but we also rest in the approval that we have in him. Some of you may be old enough to remember the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire. It was a movie about two British track athletes. Harold Abrams, a Jewish man, and Eric Little, a Christian. They competed in the 1924 Olympics. And they each have a quote that reveals just the contrasting approaches to work and rest. Harold Abrams 
said this. He said, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? And then there was Eric Liddell who said this. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. The first man working but unable to rest because his work is his way of justifying his existence. And the second man resting, even when he's working, so that as he works with all his might for the Lord, he rests. There's a deeper rest that he's experiencing because he's found his approval in the Lord and not in whether or not he wins the race. Rest in the approval that God has for you. Because it's hard to find rest at work, isn't it? It's hard to find rest when you're working. But there's a deeper rest available, whether or not you have a job or what your job is. There's a deeper rest that's available in Christ. In knowing who you are in him. In being loved. In knowing that you are enough. In knowing that whether or not you have a job or how you perform at that job, you are loved. You are enough. Hebrews 9 puts it this way. Hebrews 4 verse 9 puts it this way. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. It seems, you know, paradoxical there. Make every effort to enter his rest. Work hard to enter his rest. The rest that is found in knowing who you are in Christ So no matter what happens at your earthly job or vocation, that you rest in his approval of you and his love for you, that you're enough for him. Matthew 11, Jesus invites you with this. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a rest, a deeper rest that comes from resting in God, in Jesus, in the gospel. Hebrews 4 puts it this way, For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. But we who believe have entered that rest. Believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins, for every way that you've ever fallen short, every way you've ever rebelled against God, that Jesus has paid the penalty for that, that you're loved that you are enough in him. That no matter what the evaluation of your boss is, no matter what the evaluation of your spouse or your kids or whoever else is evaluating you in your vocation, whatever else their evaluation may be, the verdict is already in from God, the one whose evaluation matters the most. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You're loved. You're enough. So let me just close with this last passage from Paul that I love so much. It says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. No matter how toilsome and frustrating and hard your vocation may be, when you're doing it unto him, to honor him, to love him and love your neighbor, it's never in vain. It all matters eternally. 
So again, I encourage you. God's given each of you meaningful work to do. Take up the responsibility he's given you and find a way to connect it to serving your neighbor and work to please him and rest in his approval of you. Amen. Let me pray and the worship team's gonna come forward and we'll respond in worship. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters out here who are really struggling with their vocation who are weary, who are exhausted. Lord, please, I pray this morning that you would lift their eyes up to you, that you would strengthen them, encourage them, help them to truly hear and experience your approval of them, that they might work for you because your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Work to honor you. For those who are idle, those who are lazy, Lord, I pray that you would convict their hearts. That you would remind them that you have given them gifts and talents and resources to be used in service to you and in love to neighbor, Lord. That you would give them courage and discipline to go and serve you, Lord. We do pray that you would help our light to shine. That men and women would see our good deeds and praise you for the way that we love and the way that we serve and the way that we work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.